just a little bit of context. A few weeks ago, um, let's see, last week we spoke that you can lose your salvation. The week before, which seemed a little out of order, was um, how a person loses their salvation, which, if you remember, was not because of sin, but from denying faith, that sin is the symptom, it's not the cause. And I did them out of order that way because the week before I spoke to the scripture that Gail shared this morning, uh, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of spirit and death. And I thought those two needed to connect with each other. Does anybody remember why we've been taken away from the law of sin and death? Why we, as Christians, as born-again people, are no longer under the law? Remember why? That's the way, but the, the why is what I'm looking for. You guys need a better teacher. <laughs> it's, a, it's all right. You, you, I didn't prepare you. The reason that you are no longer under law but under grace is because the power of sin is the law. And in order to break the power of sin over a person's life, they cannot be accountable to the law unto their eternal salvation. So when you get saved, you're no longer under law but under grace. You're under this new legal system called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Everybody else in the world, she came and got her phone and I didn't even see it. Man. Everybody else in the world that's not born again is under the law of the spirit, uh, excuse me, the law of sin and death, that if they, if they, if they sin, they die. But, but Christians are not. And the reason they're not is because the law empowers sin over a person's life. If there's no law, then sin has no power. And that's the reason why you've been moved from that legal system into this other legal system. Okay, so... Last week, we, we demonstrated that you can, a person who can be saved can actually be unsaved. And there was some, some good stuff in Hebrews that I wanted to teach, but it would have been just too much for all in one week. So let me do that now. I'm going to set up with Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3, and then we'll go into the meat, which is, is almost completely Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. All right, Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, which now he's speaking of the law. The law was given through angels to Moses, Moses to the people. That's what he's talking about here. For if the law, or excuse me, if the word given through angels provided unalterable or proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. So I'm just going to say God, because we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we know God wrote all of the Bible. He just used different people's hands to pen the word. So God said that we need to be paying very close attention to what we've heard, the gospel, the word of truth, because if we don't pay attention, we can drift away, and we would be neglecting this great salvation. To drift away is to be passive or to be disengaged. The context of the Greek words that he's using here implies a shipwreck. Like you see a ship and it's out on the sea and there's a safe haven. Or maybe it's a, it's a guy in a kayak and he's floating down the river and there's a safe passage that goes around this waterfalls and you know death kind of scenario. But, but he's just looking around and he's not paying any attention. 
he's drifting away, and, and the, the end would be like a shipwreck. He's neglecting the opportunity. He's not paying attention to get around all that's coming. W- one of the um, uh, commentaries that I read has an, ex- an explanation of this where he describes neglect. And I think, do we have it in there, Heather? Okay, I want you to see it as I'm reading it. So here's how he's describing what this neglect means if we were to neglect our salvation. Neglect, carelessness, or apathy is spiritually fatal. Believers who, because of negligence, allow their relationship with Christ and their devotion to the truth to slip are in great danger of being swept away by the waves of life past the safe harbor and away from the place of security. So so that's what the writer of Hebrews, God is trying to tell us to be very careful about. That's the setup for all that's coming after this. We'll jump now to chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Remember, in the context of, of maintaining your salvation, of, of keeping your compass focused where it's supposed to be, or, or following the, the true north of your compass to Jesus, the, the walking with the Spirit versus walking with the flesh that, that Gail read to us out of um, Romans chapter 8. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. So we are Jesus' house, but we aren't ultimately Jesus' house unless we hold fast our confidence, the boast of our hope firm until the end. We saw all those different scriptures last week that spoke to that. And as we were waiting on the interpretation to come, Ashley brought me her phone, and she had it opened. I mean, she doesn't know what I'm going to preach on. And she wanted me to read to the church what was showing on her phone, which was verses 7 through 11 of Hebrews, which is the very next thing that I already had in my sermon. So if (laughs) I should connect Ashley to a donkey. But if God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through me, and he's speaking through Ashley to make sure that we hear what he's saying today, right? Okay, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, and this is a very common, it's a, it's a frequent admonition you're going to hear through this set of scriptures. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, God speaking. As in the day of the wild, excuse me, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Pick spoke a lot about rest as he was preaching earlier today. So, Today, if you hear his voice. When? Today. If, if you're blessed to wake up tomorrow and you hear his voice, it's today. The, the key to hear when he speaks of today, he's like, he's speaking of now. I, I hate to use Joe as this, you know, overarching reference to everything, but, but our son Joe was only 30 years old. He parked that semi-truck and it was today. And there was no next today for Joe. He, he didn't go to sleep. He just died. There was no today. So when he had the opportunity, this is what God's trying to tell us. When you have the opportunity, take advantage of the opportunity today. Okay. Why does he speak of today? 
because of drifting away, which leads to a hardened heart. Like the example that he shared with us of Israel in the wilderness. Forty years they didn't enter his rest. None of those, but a couple, were able to enter into the promised land because of unbelief. You'll see that in just a minute. We continue, verse 12. God says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me read verse 13 to you again in another translation. This is the New Living Translation. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For we have become partakers of Christ, there's that word again, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So God is telling us through his word that we are to encourage or warn each other today, every day, as long as it's still today, warn each other of the deceitfulness of sin. Nobody wants to talk about sin. Nobody surely wants to talk about somebody else's sin. And we think a person that does want to talk about somebody else's sin is just a judgmental person. And they need to read Romans, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 7 and, and get that plank out of their eye. But Scripture says that sin is so defeatful, this defeatful, deceitful that if we aren't careful, if we're not admonishing each other daily, as long as it's today, we're not warning each other that we will become hardened towards God. And then sin won't feel sinful anymore. And ultimately, we could so neglect our faith that we would fall away. Amen. Thank you. I, 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 for the sake of brevity, you'd think there's nothing about this service that's brief, but I didn't include the scriptures, but you would do well to read them in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 about people becoming hardened towards God. What does it mean to become hard towards God? Because there comes a point where God gives a person over to their hardened heart. And now they don't have a, have a conscience anymore to sense that they're not following God, that they're walking in the flesh, not in the spirit. They can't even be aware of it. It's crazy to them because God's taken his hand off them and given them over to that what they want. They have no, that's right, no spiritual compass. Compass. Verse 16 for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom he did swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able, able to enter because of unbelief. Forgive me, I don't know why I can't speak today. I want you to notice the connection between disobedience and unbelief. So many people think that faith is an acknowledgement. It's a belief. I believe in Jesus. That's faith. That's believing. But disobedience is unbelief. Disobedience is not repentance. Faith, saving faith, is repent and believe. Believe would be acknowledging Jesus and that he paid the price for our sin debt before God such that our sin could be attributed to his account and his righteousness could be imputed to us. Repentance says that we will serve Jesus as Lord and we'll turn away. We'll turn and go in another direction. That direction is being led by him, not by ourselves. The word for unbelief is, 
I'm sure I'm not going to pronounce it right, but apostia. Like if somebody believes in God, they would be a theist. If someone believes there's no God, they would be an atheist. Apostia, pistia, is, is a form from the word pistis or pisteo, which is the word in the Greek that, that is used to indicate the kind of believing, the faith that brings us to salvation in the Lord. All right. The, the point I want to make is that disobedience is unbelief. And, and, and great, great, great theologian teachers would tell you that the greatest sin is unbelief. So when you see disobedient, you can connect it to unbelief. Apostia, not faith. Therefore, now chapter 4, therefore let us fear, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who, for we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, right? Joshua led them across the Jordan, that God parted that river. Joshua led them across that river into the promised land. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his, God's rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So over and over again, he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, he's going to tell us about God's voice right here. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, this verse gets preached all the time to speak to the Bible, and it's right on. It does speak to the Bible because the Bible is God's word. But in the context of what's being taught in Hebrews right here, it's speaking to hearing God's voice as you're going day by day, and the deceitfulness of sin is trying to draw you away from faith, and the word of God is able to separate the lies. It's able to separate the deceptions. It's able to separate what your soul is speaking to what your born-again spirit is speaking. And that's what he's trying to get us to see, is that when God speaks, you need to listen to his voice. Otherwise, you could end up hardened against God. Drifting, remember at the beginning, drifting away? Drifting is not hearing, listening, or being concerned with God's voice. When you're drifting, God's speaking. When you're on your way towards the waterfalls instead of the safe passage around them, God's speaking. When you're drifting, you're not going the direction you should because you're just not listening. You're just not concerned with what God has to say. 
neglect, remember he said neglecting early on in, in um, chapter 2? Neglect is not attending to your salvation, your relationship with God. So when you're neglecting, you're not reading or studying his word so that he can raise that word up through his spirit, through your spirit, inside of you, so that you can respond to it and not drift away. It's, it's real time in prayer. It's, it's real time with the Lord. It's not... You know, I pray all the time on my drive to the grocery store or, you know, I worship to the radio on my way to work. Those are wonderful things that you should do. But if you don't have a devoted relationship, time that you spend with the Lord, time that you spend in his word, you will be so easily deceived and so easy to find yourself just drifting away. And you could drift to the point where your heart becomes hard and then you can't hear God anymore. He'll give you over to that which you choose, your own life versus the life that you should have committed to him. If we're not neglectful, his voice will protect us by showing us the deception of sin and make us able to judge the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let me read that to you in the New Living Translation. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. We will all give an account before the Lord. Remember the Lord, Lord, guys, in Matthew chapter 7? If you're not here, you know, this isn't your regular stop. It's it's a favorite of mine. It, It makes such a wonderful point. Jesus says, and on that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and then they'll read to him their resume of good works, casting out devils, doing many miracles in his name, all these different things that they did. And Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you, you practicers of lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. So these people thought they were okay, but they weren't okay. They had to give an account. We're going to have to give an account. If we're not careful, if we're not diligent, if we're not diligent for one another and not just for ourselves, many, 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 many professing Christians will find themselves on that day Hearing the words from Jesus, I never knew you. You never sowed into me. You never sowed into my word. You never listened and heard what I was trying to tell you, and you wandered off and got hard in your heart, and then you were overwhelmed in sin. Sin, remember, sin is not the issue to your salvation. Faith is the issue to your salvation. If you find yourself practicing sin, you are of the devil. You are not of God. But the sin is not the issue. Faith is the issue. If you see practice of sin, if somebody says, hey, but what about this? And you find that you've actually fallen into the practice of sin, what it's telling is you don't have faith. And without faith, you can't please God. And without faith, you can't be saved. Your issue is never going to be the sin. The sin is always the symptom. It's like a fever. Annika had a fever, bad fever, 103.9 fever. Every single day, this fever... You could kill the fever and it wouldn't solve Annika's problem because the problem was the, um, the pneumonia infection that had gotten into her lungs. If you address the fever and not the infection, you can figure out a way to make the fever maybe go away or get less. But the fact of the matter is that the infection is still in there. The infection is no faith, not sin. Sin is the heart. And once your heart is hardened, you've lost faith. Sin is the symptom that flows from that. It's not the main issue. The main issue is faith. 
Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Believe, 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 believe. But lots and lots and lots of sin. What does lots and lots and lots of sin indicate? No repentance. Amen. Unbelief. Very good. It's a theme all through the New Testament. This is God speaking from Paul to Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. God through Jude to the church in general. Contend earnestly for the faith. Paul again, finish the race. If you don't finish the race, there's no prize. The prize is eternity with God. Paul, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus to the church at Smyrna, be faithful until death and you will receive the crown of life. What's that imply if you're not? No crown of life. Amen. And in Hebrews, don't neglect your salvation. If you, if you want to get stronger words, continue to read on into chapter 5 and then chapter 6, which is woe, and then 7, 8, 9, and 10, which is woe again, where he really speaks strongly about what happens to somebody who has tasted of the Holy Spirit, of the good things of God, has gone into that place of, of intimate relationship with God through the Holy Spirit from their salvation and then cast it aside. It's pretty scary stuff. Why so much mourning? Why all through the New Testament this stuff? Because being deceived is real. It's a very real possibility that we can be deceived if we're not careful, if we're not intimate with one another. So what should we do? The first thing we need to do is we need to know our enemies. There's three primary enemies you have to your faith. And the first one on the list is you. Not you, your new resurrected, born again of incorruptible, imperishable seed, new man, but your old man that you've got to drag around with you all through the rest of this life. That one, your flesh, is your enemy, and you have to keep your foot on his throat. That's why you carry your cross daily. Every single day, you follow Jesus. You deny yourself. That part of yourself has to be denied because your flesh is perfectly opposed to the Holy Spirit. There is no agreement between your flesh, my flesh, and the Holy Spirit. Anything that's, that the flesh wants, the Spirit is against. Anything that the Spirit is calling for, the flesh is against. The first enemy you've got to know and be aware of and deal with is your flesh. The second enemy is the world. And this is where the church is in trouble. This is why I said last week that the church at Laodicea, I think, is the Western church. That's the church we have to be careful of. Because that church thought that they were rich and they were awesome and everything is going great. And God, you know, we just really don't need you very much. He says, no, you're blind, you're naked, you're wretched. He said, you're lukewarm, you taste like vomit in my mouth, and I'm going to spit you out if you don't be zealous and repent. The world draws us with its deceitful ways, with its deceitful ways. And it tries to make us think that bad things are good and good things are bad. And God says, if you're a friend of the world, you're his enemy. It's not, there's no okay between the Christian and the world. Separate yourself. Come away from, get out of, because the world is death to a Christian because it's a total enemy of God. And, and you cannot fellowship with the world and love God. Because they're opposite to one another. First, your flesh. Second, the world. And third, the one we call the enemy. Satan and all his minions running around. Big minions and little minions. All these demon spirits. All these flaming arrows. When I talk to you about spiritual warfare after church, I'm going to explain some of this to you. That, that this enemy of ours has no access control over us. I take that back. Access was a bad word. Has no control. No authority. All authority has been given to Jesus. The enemy has no authority over us except that which we give them. And the strength and the power of the enemy is deceit. 
So if we are going to be influenced by the enemy, it will be through deception. And then once we, we respond to the deception, then we give permission that that enemy can come in and start to mess with us and start to do things. And unless that we confess and repent and we close those doors, then he, they have legal access to torment us. Three things you need to be conscious. Who's your enemy? One, yourself, your flesh, not your born-again self, your old man self. Two, the world, and three, Satan, and all those little demon spirits or big demon spirits that he has at his disposal to bring about your death and destruction. Second thing you should know, be active or aggressive about sowing into your relationship with the Lord. I don't care how active and aggressive you are, you could be more active and more aggressive, and it wouldn't cost you a thing. It would be awesome. If, if you spend 10 minutes a day with the Lord and three hours with the television, turn it off. Give it all to the Lord and watch what he does. How does she know that, that you don't get because you don't ask? So she asks, and then the Lord fills her up. Revelation knowledge that she can come and speak over us. Bring a gift. Bring an awesome thing to us. Why? Because she sits with the Lord and she asks, and she waits for him to answer. And sometimes he probably answers in the moment, and sometimes he answers during worship. But if you will be diligent to seek after him, you'll be rewarded. The reward is to find him. If we're aggressive about sowing into our relationship with the Lord, if we do that, we will be able to hear and respond to his voice. Remember that voice, that sharper than any two-edged sword, able to separate. There's no nonsense that the word of God can't cut right through it. The nonsense comes when we want this, but the word of God says that, and we have to put the flesh down and respond to what's true. The next thing is to be engaged with one another, warning and encouraging each other against sin and its deceitfulness so we don't become hardened against God. And that's a two-way street. One direction of that street you see in James chapter 5, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. The other is to confront sin. One is to confess, the other is to confront. When you confront sin, you do it speaking the truth in in love, you don't ever go with the spirit of judgment to somebody you see in a trespass. Galatians, I think it's chapter 5, says, if any of you who are spiritual catch another brother or sister in um, a fault or a sin, you go to them with a spirit of gentleness, being conscious that that could easily have been you, and you restore them in gentleness if there's correction that needs to come in the church, Jesus says you don't, you don't stand up in the front and holler, that person is doing this. No, you go to that person privately and you confront the sin in love and, and, and if they repent, then you've won back your brother. The stronger measures are only out of love and concern for a person who won't repent. But the first step is always to humbly go to a person understanding it could easily have been me as it was you and then you tell them what you've seen. And if somebody comes to you, you have to be humble when they come to you because nobody wants that job. Nobody wants that job. Well, actually, I think there's people that want that job, but they're the ones that shouldn't have that job. (laughs) Nobody whose heart is tender before the Lord wants that job. But everyone whose heart is tender before the Lord is going to do that job. It's no fun to have your sin called out. If you don't receive with humility, people are not going to come to you. And then you can be deceived and you have nobody helping you because you'll get hard towards the Lord. It's a two-way street. It's a receive and it's a confront. So finally then, let me just read from the end of um, 
chapter 4, from verse 14 through 16. All this stuff, right? Confront it, be aware of it, be diligent in your relationship with the Lord, hear His voice, press in so you're able to hear His voice, don't be deceived by sin, today is the day, you don't maybe have tomorrow, you've got to be sure you're okay today, every single day. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You see, it's not passive and casual. It's like, imagine yourself, you know, you're dangling over hell's fire, and the rope you're holding on to is your confession of faith to Jesus. He's like, don't let go, because today you need to hold on. And if tomorrow comes, then today you need to hold on. Hold fast, hold fast, hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Now listen, that's, a, that's an all-encompassing scripture. Jesus has experienced everything that we've experienced. When we come to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm struggling with, he says, man, I know that's hard, but I didn't fail. So you can come and I have answers for you. You can come boldly. But contextually, what he's talking about here is this issue of drifting away, of becoming passive in your faith, of, of potentially becoming hardened against God. And, and it says you can come boldly before the throne of grace and you can find mercy and grace in your time of need. Why mercy? Because you've been neglectful. Or th- whoever it is, it's not us because we don't get like that, but, but other people might. You get the mercy because you've been neglectful. When you recognize, I've been, I've been slothful. I've, I've been less than passionate. I've been like the Laodicean church, Lord. And I'm coming to the throne of mercy because I need mercy. And he says, I give you mercy. Confess your sins to God and he'll forgive you because he's righteous and he's just and he'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But you've got to come to the altar. You have to come to the throne of grace and you have to ask for that mercy and he will give you mercy for being neglectful. But then why for grace? So you don't do it anymore. To empower you, to strengthen you, to build you up, to to let you know that in the power of his spirit, in your weakness, he's strong. That when you come to that altar, to that throne of grace, you can get mercy because you've been neglectful and you can get grace so that you won't be anymore.